You're listening to Rick Kleffel, the Agony Column podcast. You can find additional reviews, interviews, print interviews, and book commentary five days a week at trashotroncom agony. The following interview with Chuck Polinick begins with a 10-minute reading of Chapter 14 from his new novel, Snuff. This excerpt contains sexually explicit material which may offend some listeners. Please be advised. It is a self-contained short story. Now Chuck Polnick will read Chapter 14 from his novel, Snuff. Chapter 14 How I told it to Mr. Bacardi, that wasn't the whole deal, not even half the story. When I first downloaded clips of Cassie Wright, I wanted to see her maybe knitting a regular, ordinary thing, I don't know, out of yarn, or I wanted to watch her cooking a pan of something on a stove, just, I guess, reading a book in a chair next to a lamp in a nice room without gallons of hot jizz all over her. On bulletin boards, online message boards, where fans post details about every mole and eyelash Cassie Wright has, every color lipstick she's wore, guys dissect every blowjob, I don't know, like it was for college homework extra credit. Cassie Wright was born in Missoula, Montana. Her parents are Alvin and Lenny Wright. They live in Great Falls these days. And yes, Cassie Wright had a baby she gave up for adoption 19 years ago. Surfing the web, I looked for pictures of her vacuuming carpet driving a car with her clothes on and nothing getting stuffed inside of her. Some money orders I mailed and nothing ever came back. But the first package I got was a Cassie Wright pocket vagina, the premium, limited edition, numbered version, Number 4,200, totally museum quality, mint condition. Small enough I'd carry it to school in my jeans pocket, with my left hand tracing the folds and soft hairs of her. In modern American studies, I'd sit in the back row with my left finger brailing, blind, deep in my pocket, until I knew every fold and wrinkle by heart. Ask me the state capitals of Wyoming or Phoenix, and I'd just shrug. But ask me anything about the pussy flaps of Cassie Wright, and I could draw you a map. That pocket vagina. You could press the clitoris, and it would pop out. Press it back inside the hood, press it again, and it would pop out. I could do this until my fingertips were raw, red, about to bleed, I slept with it under my pillow. My teacher, Mr. Harlan, in my dynamics of science class, one day, handing back papers, he saw the calluses on my fingertips, already cracked and dark pink, and he asked if I was learning guitar. I don't know. Let's just say those hours and weeks of constant pleasure weren't doing Cassie Wright's vagina any good either. 
Let's just hope, looking at some of the 600 guys here today, that the real deal is a little more durable than the latex version. As the vagina started to break apart, I saved my newspaper delivery money until I could send away for a, a previously owned Cassie Wright latex breast replica. I could only afford the left one, but everyone would tell you that it's the better of the two. Of course, it's too big to fit in my pocket, too big for under my pillow. It's too big to do anything but collect dust under the bed. So I mowed lawns. I returned pot bottles for the deposit. I walked dogs, washed cars, raped leaves. This part, I didn't tell Mr. Bacardi. How could I? Winters, I shoveled snow, cleaned the black, stinking crud out of roof gutters with my bare hands, washed St. Bernard's. I hung Christmas lights and trimmed hedges. Nighttime, I'd squeeze my breast replica, rub the dusty nipple between my lips, lick it, tweak it between two fingers until I fell asleep. I drained and changed the oil in big four-door automatic tranny old lady cars, needing the money to buy a Cassie Wright replica, a fully realistic sex surrogate that makes you pretty much the bitch slave of every old lady in town. I don't know. I went trick-or-treating for UNICEF, and those worm-eaten, starving kids in Bangladesh, they didn't see one nickel of the 30 bucks that folks donated. The day that the brown package arrived in the mail, my adopted mom called me at school to ask, should she open it? Let's just say I panicked. I told the worst lie a kid can. Told her, no, I said, it was a gift, her special secret Christmas present that I'd sent away to surprise her. On the phone, I could hear my adopted mom shaking the box. She said, it's so heavy. She said, I hope you didn't spend a fortune. Shame. Shame on me. Those lawns I mowed, the dogs walked, the cars washed. I told my adopted mom all that work went into buying her the best dream present ever because she was such a great, wonderful, loving, terrific mother. And on the phone, her voice melted, saying, Oh, Darren, you shouldn't have. When I got home, the package sat on my bed, heavier than you'd guess, a weight between, between a, a big library dictionary and a St. Bernard. My adopted mom was gone to her cake-decorating workshop, and my adopted dad was at work. With nobody else in the house, I peeled open the box, and inside, all folded and wadded, looking like some pink mummy, leathery and wrinkled as a, as a peat bog mummy from the National Geographic magazine. The online auction sold it as being brand new, a virgin. But the blonde wig smelled like a beer, and the hair felt patchy where it was pulled out. The inside of each thigh felt sticky, the breasts greasy. On the bottom of one foot, I found the kind of stem that you'd see on a beach ball, so you could blow her up. I unrolled her across my bed and started to blow. I blew and her breasts rose. They fell, they rose. I blew and some wrinkles went smooth, but then came back. I blew air into the bottom of her foot until lightning bolts flashed in my eyes. Right now, here and now, while I'm waiting to hear my 
gangbang number called. The girl with a stopwatch walks past, and I put my hand out to make her stop. I touch her on the elbow, just my fingers on the inside of one elbow, and I ask if it's true what Mr. Bacardi's telling guys, could Cassie Wright die today? The girl says, vaginal embolism. She looks at me, then her eyes go back to the sheets of names on her clipboard. Still running her pen down the list of names, she marks a check next to one guy. The girl twists one hand and looks at the watch on her wrist. She check marks next to another name. She says it takes a puff of air equivalent to blowing up a balloon. But due to the dense blood supply in a woman's pelvic region, you can force a bubble of air into her circulatory system. She says, if a woman is pregnant, it's even easier. In one case from 2002, she says, a woman in Virginia was using a carrot for stimulation and died from an embolism, but anything with an odd shape might trap and force air into the bloodstream. Other documented cases include batteries, candles, pumpkins. Not to mention, the girl says, soap on a rope. Vaginally or rectally, it can happen in either hole. The girl says every year, an average of more than 900 women die this way. Each woman dies within seconds. She says, if you need facts and figures, then I recommend The Ultimate Guide to Cunnilingus by Violet Blue or the article Venus Air Embolism, Clinical and Experimental Considerations, from the August 1992 issue of Critical Care Medicine. The girl looks at her watch again and she says, Now, if you'll excuse me? I don't know. Pumpkins? All those years ago, blowing air into my Cassie Wright surrogate, I almost blacked out before I heard the hissing, a faint soft whisper of air escaping. After filling the bathtub with water, dragging the pink skin of her down the hallway, I held her under to look for bubbles from a leak, my hands spread under water, holding her submerged while her blonde hair swam around her face and her eyes stared up, dead, drowned. Bubbles swelled at the sides of her neck. Bubbles outlined her nipples and the flaps of her pussy. Wide half-circles of little holes leaking air. Teeth marks, bites through her pink skin. My adopted dad's train set. He uses every plastic and glue that you can find. With her pink skin spread over, over mountains and villages of his plastic landscape. I dabbed rubber and epoxy doctored with clear nail polish and acetate until I'd healed every bite mark. From my adopted mom's dresser, the bottom of the underwear drawer, I borrowed a lacy honeymoon nightgown that had been buried there forever in layers of tissue paper. I borrowed the pearl necklace that my adopted mom never wore except to church on Christmas. Dressing the surrogate, I said every opening line from every Cassie Wright video I'd ever seen. Brushing the blonde wig, I said, Hey, lady, did you order a pizza? Wiping my adopted mom's lipstick on the lips. I said, Hey, lady, you look like you could use a nice back rub. Spraying perfume, I said, Relax, lady, I'm only here to check your pipes. On my computer, I was playing a pirate copy of World Whore One. 
and whatever Lloyd George did, I did the same. Pulled down the pink thong panties, unhooked the push-up bra. Lloyd and I were both laying pipe when, when Cassie's breasts went from a D cup to a C. By now my, my dick was bumping mattress. She was leaking, losing air. The faster I pumped, the flatter she went. From a C cup to an A, shriveling and wrinkling underneath me, wasting away. The more I pumped, the more Cassie Wright's face collapsed, caved in. Her skin felt loose, baggy, and slack. With my every push, she aged a decade, dying, dead, and decomposing as I, I hurried faster, pounding mattress, rubbing myself raw in my rush to get off. Pumping this pink ghost, this murdered outline down the middle of my twin bed. Every woman dies within seconds. I never heard the door open behind me, didn't feel the draft of air on my bare, sweating ass. I didn't turn around until I heard the voice of my adopted mom, her honeymoon nightgown, her Christmas pearls. On my computer, Lloyd George blowing his load down the side of Cassie Wright's beautiful face, my adopted mom behind me, she yells, she says, do you have any idea who that is? And I turn my bone stuck straight out, a pole still wrapped in pink latex, me waving a flag shaped like Cassie Wright. And my adopted mom screams, she screams, that's your birth mother. That, that was the last boner I would ever sprout. No, I never did tell Mr. Bacardi that part. We've just heard a reading of Chapter 14 from Chuck Palahniuk's novel, Snuff. Now we'll hear an interview conducted at KQED Studios. Chuck Palahniuk is the best-selling author of Lullaby, Diary, and Haunted, and Rant, an oral history of Buster Casey, his novel Fight Club was made into a film by director David Fincher. He's the author of nonfiction works that include Fugitives and Refugees, A Portrait of Portland, Oregon, and Stranger Than Fiction. His new novel is Snuff. Thank you for joining me, Chuck. Hey, thank you very much, Rick. Once again, we meet again at the microphone. Again at the microphone with a, a novel I think that is, I think, perhaps your most transgressive yet. You know... I would have to argue that because I think in a way uh, violence is always perceived as more transgressive in American culture than sex is. Or maybe it's the other way around. Maybe you are right. I, I think find this a little more disturbing than, than any of the, the violence you've portrayed. Um, when you started to write this novel, you had to do a lot of research. And, and as usual, this book is filled with interesting facts, and it's fun to, to watch the facts slide into fiction and out of fiction. Tell me a little bit about how you went about researching this book. It must have been fun, I guess, in some ways. It, <laughs> you know, it's always fun to research pornography. Um, and it's also, um, it's interesting in that more and more I recognize that, that the way a culture um, assimilates or digests or accepts something horrific like the sinking of the Titanic or 
is to make lesser and lesser copies of it, to kind of tell that story over and over and over the way we tell our own stories, the way a cow chews a cud, until a story is really, really broken down and, uh, and can be accepted at that point. And the last sort of station on that cross is to make the event into the premise for a porn movie. And when I was researching snuff, I found that there were six or seven porn movies readily being sold right now that are based on the sinking of the Titanic. And so, you know, making the event an excuse to have serial sex over and over within two hours is really the last thing that we do to the worst things that happen to us. Well, that's a, that's a fascinating observation. Now, uh, did you find any that were based on 9-11 yet? People have told me that there's at least one 9-11 porn movie out there. Uh, you know, people trapped on a high floor deciding, hey, let's go for it. Let's do everything sexually we've ever not done. I haven't seen it yet, but a lot of people have told me it's it's for sale. This novel, though, it, it when you look at it, you think, well, it, it's about sex. It's really, I think, uh, quite an effective horror novel in many ways. You know, I always thought of it as a love story. It's It's a romance because... Really, people are just trapped there long enough to explain the, their secret agenda for being among the 600 guys who have shown up there. Uh, so, you know, romance, horror, what's the difference? <laughs> it all depends on how you experience it. Uh, there is, I, I will say, yes, there is a, a really sweet aspect of this, and, and you do a fine job of uh, keeping it talking about the most horrible things in the world without actually ever showing us them. Could you explain about how you do that and why you do that? Well, in a way, everyone is waiting, sort of milling around in this this almost sort of zen other world of this basement where they're eating snack food, waiting to be called to the set to do, to do their, their one sex act toward the, the record. And the set is only accessed up this flight of stairs. And whenever the door is opened, all that people ever see is this sort of bright flash of all the, the camera lights, the stage lights. And so in a way, really, is everyone's kind of waiting for that sort of final judgment or that, uh, that Armageddon, that, uh, you know, in a way, Cassie Wright represents death as this thing that you can only speculate about. And also the speculation of, you know, what she's going to look like when you finally get to the top of those stairs, whether she will be beautiful or whether she will even be alive and whether or not you might be asked to complete your part with a partner that, that's no longer alive. Um, there's just all of those unknown things, like the monster that's withheld until the end of the horror movie, so that you can really speculate about it and build up your anxiety. I, I thought it was almost a, a, a heavenly light. That's, that was the, it was um, an ascent towards heaven. And in a way, she's, she's the, the Schrodinger's cat of pornography. Oh my gosh, cat or duck? <laughs> um, this novel. Uh, oh, the the cat. I was thinking, uh, Wittgenstein's duck. Oh, Wittgenstein's not. No, Schrodinger's cat is the cat that's in the box, and you don't right. know whether it's alive Doesn't or exist. dead. It's, yeah, it, you, whether it's there or not you, yes. until you open the box. Okay. <clears throat> this novel takes up once again your ideas of of an oral history, but it's much more limited this time, in a way, than, than in Rant. But it follows that, that uh, same kind of structure, doesn't it? 
It, it does. It's really uh, the perspective rotates between the four main characters, and originally it was a ripoff of uh, Jacqueline Suzanne's Ballet of the Dolls, where you followed three characters, and you went from Anne to Neely to Jennifer to Anne to Neely to Jennifer. And so originally it was written from the perspective of these three men, sort of the, the oldest porn veteran, the, the youngest porn virgin, and then the man in the middle, sort of the middle-aged guy. And at the very last draft, my friends in workshop said they, they really wanted to hear a female voice. So I wrote the talent wrangler Sheila in as the fourth voice. And really, the perspective just alternates between each of the three men and then Sheila, and then just constantly revolves so that, so that nobody's kind of talking about themselves for too long, and everyone is kind of the camera through which other people are, are depicted. Um, it, this leads to, leads to and partially answers a question that I had because this novel is incredibly crafty in the way it's it's constructed in the way as the details of the relationships are are revealed and who is who and why are they are there and what what they all come to mean to one another as they realize who each of them is and I was going to ask how much of this did you the the outline or the overall arcing plot did you have in your mind before you started and how much did you discover as you wrote it? I'd originally written it as a play because I, I really love how plays have to do so much with a very limited window of time and place and and cast of characters. They have to do everything with next to nothing. So I knew a lot of the plot points really up through the second act but the the third act was a complete surprise to me, and I just I ended up rewriting it considerably at least three times, and each ending was just enormously different, and I wasn't happy with it because i never I never liked to resolve a story by by killing a character, and it just seemed so inevitable that one of these characters would die uh but I found a way around that i and, and one of the the things that that is interesting are the some of the details of, of the the movie business. Now, this is something that interests me about you. You've you're a writer who's really had a pretty good experience with the movies. I mean, in, in that the the David Fincher version of Fight Club is uh, a well now at least is a highly regarded movie. It's a wonderful movie, and it's a and it's a fine adaptation of your work. But your perspective of the movies in this book, this this is art that kills. It, art, but art that kills, but is committing suicide. You know, there uh, there's a lot of speculation early in the book that that Cassie Wright doesn't want her record to be broken, and she knows that if somehow she dies during the production of this movie, and the movie is released and goes into the culture before people realize that she died during it, that it will create such an outrage that uh, that no one will allow an, another such movie to be made. And her record will stand for all time. And the proceeds from this movie will go to this child that she's never met, that she gave up for adoption, that was conceived during her first movie. So you know, nobody's really being victimized, and and really the only apparent victim is going into it fully aware and fully intending 
to cause her own death. Well, well, I was talking about, I mean, some of the, the, the as you call them, true facts. Okay. And, and, and choruses, you, you love these choruses, and you have a lot of true facts about, um, I think, is it Marlene Dietrich who oh. bronzed her legs, all the people who did things that, that practically killed them just when they were in the movies just because we didn't know then that maybe it's not a good idea to paint your legs with lead-based paint. There's a, especially from the Cassie Wright character, she kind of, the porn queen justifies her own actions by constantly citing ways in which famous conventional actors have, you know, mutilated themselves or even crippled themselves by trying to create a specific effect, whether it was Lon Chaney stretching the skin of a hard-boiled egg over his eye so that he would look blind in uh, Hunchback of Notre Dame. I think that's it, yes. And that eventually enough bacteria built up during the filming that he lost sight in that eye, that he went half-blind because of trying to look half-blind. And so, you know, she's justifying her behavior by citing the sacrifices that all these movie stars have made. Um, people who were killed during the production of a lot of different movies. Um, so, and I, I love the nonfiction stuff. It reveals state of mind. It pads out the action in a scene. Uh, and it makes the character, it, it gives the character a, a huge authority because you can trust that the character is a smart person and is, you know, really, really done some research into this one area. And, and it makes them, each of your characters, one of the things that's nice about this book is <clears throat> we really like all the characters, even though they're in, trapped in somewhat dis, uh, a despicable place, in a, in a horrible place. As we get to know them, e even Mr. 137, who is fairly scary guy, we, we get to like all of these characters. And it's not, it doesn't start out that way. Could you talk about take, transporting your reader from these perspectives? I think when we first meet these people, we're just bound to think, oh, my God, yikes. But you transport the reader from that kind of yikes reaction to something very different. You know, the, uh, the idea is to just sort of allow the character to very, very gradually reveal himself. And my favorite metaphor is always the stripper. You go to a strip club, the stripper steps out there. She does not drop her G-string and say, okay, this is a pussy. Any questions? No, you know, she very, very slowly, you know, she takes off the gloves, she takes off the shoes, she takes off the stockings, and it takes forever. And all along, all along you're thinking, you know, oh gosh, you know, there's got to be something different about this. But like even the most despicable or offensive character, eventually the only thing that's going to be underneath all of that is a pussy, like a million other pussies. And at that point, you sort of see them as a human being. So my characters come on stage wearing a lot of makeup and a lot of clothes and kind of gradually take those off. But eventually it's either a dick or a pussy. And that's when the curtain has to come down because uh, there's, you know... They're sentimental, they're vulnerable, they're human at that point, um, but you got to get them off stage. As you, um, as you reveal these details to us, um, you, you use a, a lot of repetition, and this is kind of like a, a piece of music in a way. I think this is in many ways your most musical work. It's very, it, it's short, it's, and it's uses a lot of this this repetition, these courses. Could you talk about? It? 
architecting these courses? Do you do that like um, separately from the rest of the narrative to lay out the, the courses and then pull, plant them in through the, through the narrative? The, uh, the choruses serve a lot of different functions. And one really core function is just the, the beat of time. Uh, I always use attribution, he said, she said, because I don't think that the reader sub-vocalizes it. And it allows for a pause, a kind of blank space in the speech so that, so that when you come down on, second, on the second or the third part, the following part of the quote, you come down harder because of that blank pause that little place where your eyes have had to jump over, he said or she said. And the choruses act in that same way. They're based on the concept of what do you say when you don't know what to say? When there's a a pause in the conversation in what you're saying, when you don't know what comes next and you sort of stumble, what do you say? And most people say something different. They say, you know, or they say, I don't know, or they say, you know, to, to my way of thinking, you know, everybody has these sort of trite things they say, but they're really just ways of sort of holding their place in a speech until they can say the next thing. And so these, these choruses are very specific in my characters. They, they typically either reinforce what's being said. Sheila always says something very factual and then follows it by saying, true fact, and sort of constantly reinforcing what she said. And Darren, Mr. 72, always says, I don't know. And he constantly undermines his authority as he speaks. Something, 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 I don't know. Something, something, something. And so I do this because people do this. It's a, it's a way of, of pacing out what's happening on the page. Well, this makes me wonder, did you actually attend any um, rehearsals for, for porn movies? Did I mean, this a lot of the power of your book, in this book in particular, it, it's the, the joy of eavesdropping on a conversation of just being a fly on the wall. And that's one thing this book does very well, is keep that the reader feeling like a fly on the wall, just ticking to the next character. Did, were you in any of these places? Not a porn movie, but I spent a lot of last summer on the set for Choke, which uh, was made into a movie with Sam Rockwell and Angelica Houston last summer, and before that, Fight Club, and I've been on a couple other sets. And so, to my way of thinking, it's, it's all kind of the same. It's everybody standing around eating popcorn, ignoring the fact that something horrific is happening in front of the camera five feet away, uh, whether it's sex or murder or... You know, God only knows. That was kind of my thought that this, so this book is really, really does express your feelings about the movies and the making of movies. Yeah, <laughs> which is why I write books. <laughs> my gosh, what tedious work those people have to do. Oh, and to be able to sort of turn it on to, you know, sort of express something that appears genuine, to express it on demand under such enormous stressful circumstances. Uh, I don't envy them that. As you um, uh, unveil this story, you talk a lot of the, about the different aspects of movies. And one of the things you, you mentioned, I thought this was very interesting, um, 
because when we see movies, we see the full production. There's always music, and, and there's no music being in the in the on the set. So you you have this kind of disconnect. You talk about that there's no backing music while the porn movies are being made. There's no chaka chaka guitar track. And in a way, the uh, the background music is that that thing you're not really aware of until it's missing that does sort of help fill up the screen and sort of pace out the action and provide a, a continuity from what might be really disparate shots. Uh, so in a way, the, the background music is the choruses, the true fact, the I don't know, the... Uh, if you're going to ask me about this, you know, the, the kind of the choruses I use. Now... Given again that you know the movies have treated you fairly well, yet you have such a a, a, a fairly dismal view of their making. Um, could you talk about that? I mean, it seems like you should be happy. They're, they're, they like you. They they want to try to render your stuff well. No, I I I, uh, <laughs> I don't want to you know, sound like I'm dumping on movies. I admire them for the tenacity that it takes to to do that creative thing. Just all of the considerations and, and all of the perseverance that's required to put those projects together and then to make them look so easy. That really is the, the trick to doing this incredibly elaborate, stressful thing and making it look like life, making it look like it just happened. Um, I really admire that. <laughs> um, but that's why writing books is so much fun because you don't have to constantly readjust the sound and the lighting and constantly, you know, recreate everything. Uh, so, no, the, the, the book isn't really a, uh, an attack on movie making. If anything, it's a, an acknowledgement of just how gritty and tedious movie making is, how tough it is. Uh, this is kind of, uh, it's like a, a documentary about making sausage. Exactly. You know, it takes all the romance, all the appeal out of sausage. Um, yeah, it's like a documentary about hiding sausage. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, a, a, as a documentary, one, one of the things I thought found really interesting, did you, uh, you talk uh, quite a bit about Annabelle Chong. Yeah. And, and now, did you ever talk with her about her work? No, I understand that Annabelle Chong has kind of disappeared. And the original idea for the play uh, that, that Snuff is based on, the, the idea came from the documentary that was made about Annabelle Chong's record-setting first movie. Um, and uh, I would love to have talked to her, but I ended up reading, I think, every interview she ever did uh, as part of my research. Could you explain who she is and what her, what her movie is about um, in, in her origin, too, because it's not what you'd expect. Annabelle Chong um, was, at the time, uh, a graduate student in gender studies, I believe, at UCLA. And she had made a couple pornographic movies under the name, well, actually, her real name is Grace Quack. And she'd, she'd made a couple movies under the name Annabelle Chong. And at the time, she uh, was studying a Roman empress, Messalina, who is held up a lot as the female Caligula, an empress that was so powerful and so voracious that she could she could screw any guy she wanted in the empire and that one night she went up against the the most famous prostitute in Rome and she said you me 
let's see just how many guys we can lay in one night. And Messalina ended up going all night into the dawn and, and won the competition by this huge margin. And, and I understand that, uh, that Grace Quick, Annabelle Chong, decided that for this movie, she would try to recreate Messalina's record-setting night. So the movie she made is, is full of Roman statues and urns and columns and 75... 80 men who volunteered to be there and stand in line and to perform with her to, to set the world's record. And so she ended up going, I believe, 261 men or 261 sexual acts with the men who were present. And she held that record for, I think, about a year uh, before it was broken. Um, sex is something that's so private and, and you know uh, an act that's so sweet and and the consummation it can be so beautiful and, and intimate obviously you're doing it wrong <laughs> um it's shameful and dirty and disgusting well <laughs> uh, a lot of people would tell us that and, and i think a lot of them would would hold this book up a, as an example of just how bad it can be so could you talk about the the polls because you actually do in this book take us from the really this uh, of to the point of the most horrible amount of sex you could possibly imagine in a scene that's that's completely torrid and fairly scary actually at contrasting that with a, a very kind of sweet and tender boy meets girl story in a way sex is in this book it's it's kind of the metaphor for the the things the, the huge extents that we go to to avoid vulnerability, to avoid intimacy. So the book, in a way, is an artificial way of being with people. You're really alone while you're reading this book. You're not with people. And so, so the book is full of dildos, which are not men. They're a plastic replica of one small aspect of masculinity. And the book is full of pocket latex vaginas, which are not women, they're one small aspect of femininity. And so this book is about really about people who are continually avoiding intimacy, continually avoiding revealing themselves and being vulnerable and attaching, connecting with another human being. And so um, it's this sort of constant you know, sex without intimacy uh, because sex is their way of avoiding intimacy until, you know, they physically begin to break down and have to begin to reveal themselves and be available, you know, to connect with other people. In a way, you know, Fight Club was similar. You know, Fight Club was just a physical activity that allowed people to be together long enough to, to eventually reveal who they really were. Uh, one thing you excel at is what I call uh, puzzle fiction. You give us the reader a series of pieces, and the real joy of reading this book and, and um, Rant, your previous novel as well, was putting these pieces together. And could you talk about uh, that writing that kind of fiction and architecting? And it can't be easy. Spreadsheets, graphs, <laughs> databases. <laughs> Actually, it's a. Uh, I'm pretty good at holding it in my head. You know, I'm not very good at doing my taxes or balancing my checkbook but I'm pretty good at keeping plot points in my head. 
and in recognizing ongoingly that the audience for fiction right now or movies or video games or music is the smartest, most sophisticated audience in the history of humanity, that they've been exposed to so many stories, so many plots, so many storytelling methods that they don't need to be spoon-fed every connection, every transition, and that you can really just present each plot point depicted as a scene. And people will comprehend what it is and comprehend the relationship of that scene to the next scene and be able to hold on to those plot points across time and connect them even though they're not sort of adjacent to each other. You know, the idea is, is to really, really accept that your audience is smart and, uh, and take advantage of it. Uh, this book, too, is it's funny, very, very funny, in a way that also simultaneously will make many readers extremely uncomfortable for laughing. And you mine that quite effectively. This is one of, I think, your favorite uh, pastimes is to make readers feel uncomfortable with their own reactions to your work. To me, laughter is something sort of tantric, that laughter is is a, a lessening of tension. And so the story, to my way of thinking, the story creates tension ongoingly. And then when it wants to lessen tension, just at the point when point where you think the reader will give up, be overwhelmed, then you throw in a laugh to lessen tension just a little bit before you, again, accelerate tension again. And just at the point where you've brought the reader to another unbearable place, you cut the tension slightly again with a laugh. And so you can gradually, like a fish ladder, I'm from the Northwest, a ladder where the fish jumps from one pool to a higher pool to a higher pool by periodically putting a laugh in there, you can coax your reader to a place where your reader would never, ever voluntarily go. And you can get your reader to a place where they find themselves completely sort of shocked and vulnerable. And it's a wonderful trick. Uh, uh, you, you do this quite effectively, though. I have to say, this book, did you worry about limiting your audience with this book? I mean, this isn't a book that you're going to sit on uh, you're not going to be chatting with Oprah about this book. You know, I'm not going to be chatting with Oprah about any book I ever write. God bless Oprah, but but I remember the good old days when they used to ban books and they used to burn books, and books were really the place where, you know, the leading edge of culture. Uh, and so that's still how I see books, as, as the place, the only place where these stories can get told. As a One of the things that I really liked about this book just uh, one of the surface features were the the porn movie titles. Did you come up with those before? There are, are how many of those are real? How many did you come up with? How what did you do with that? That was those are a lot of fun. That was a really a great game for a year. Everybody I came in contact with, mostly friends and other writers, I told them what I was working on. I was collecting, you know, porn movie titles based on actual movies. Chitty Chitty Gang Bang. Um, to Drill a Mockingbird, uh, The Importance of Bawling Earnest. And I got everybody thinking. And so every time we came in contact, people had something to bring to me. They had sort of some way of, uh, of starting conversation. And so people just for a year brought me these sort of pornified movie titles. And some of them ended up being actual porn movies. I think Black Cock Down is a porn movie. 
and The Da Vinci Load is, is an actual porn movie. Um, but I didn't know that until after the book was set, was typeset. At, at the other um, aspect of this that, that you talk about are the sex toys. They're, they're constantly throughout the book. We heard, the, heard a, a, a vast variety of them in, in the reading. And tell us where you learned about those and how you researched those. Did, do you have a, a collection in a closet somewhere? No, as sad as that would be. Um, the sex toys were such a really strong metaphor, again, for uh, for people sort of being objectified. Not just objectified as an image in pornography, but literally objectified, having their genitals cast in some synthetic substance and then sold in, in big bins in the basement of an of a adult bookstore. Just this complete object objectification. Um, a lot of that came from these thick, very dry anthropological books I was reading, uh, great big college textbooks uh, in uh, mostly feminist studies, and uh, and a lot of it came from friends. A friend had been to Italy and told me about the the enormous storerooms where all the genitals that were hammered off of Greek and Roman statues are preserved in these numbered cases because, you know, they were carved by the masters. We can't let people look at these penises, but we sure as hell can't throw them away. So we've got to find some way of, of storing them in a way that they can be referenced back to the statues that now have fig leaves. So I really, you know, I collected that stuff from everywhere. One of your characters, uh, Darren's father, has an unusual hobby. And I think this kind of goes, I, I, I found this to be kind of, contiguous with the theme of the of the genital models and this is his this HO scale railroad that he builds but it's not just like an average HO scale railroad do you know anybody who builds stuff like that I do Darren's father is based on all these really you know good as gold white middle class nice guys who work in the basement of uh, of a big train store in Portland Oregon and uh they all drive in from the suburbs, and then they all recreate these scale model ghettos and and really focus on getting the social ills right. I mean, they're hand-painting crack babies, making these tiny, tiny junkies and these tiny homeless people and these tiny schizophrenics so that their, uh, their sort of vision of, uh, of Skid Row is just perfect. And uh, I'm just kind of in love with these people, you know, who have never experienced these things, but work so hard to recreate them on this tiny, tiny, totally controlled level. And there's a sort of subtle racism going, too, that all these guys are white, and they're being so careful about making these tiny Latina prostitutes. There's a real fantasy going on. All your characters, all your male characters, for the most part, are, are, are given numbers instead of names. We have uh, everybody's, almost everybody, is covered in some kind of a bronzer. There's this theme of skins and surfaces and covers and tattoos. Could you talk about that kind of theme uh, uh, in, in this book? The, uh, the idea was to really sort of abstract, especially the male characters, um, because each one was going to function as a symbol first until they really gradually unpacked themselves. 
Mr. 72, the young guy who's 18, 19, 20 years old, he doesn't even have a name until the moment when his adopted mother walks in and catches him with the sex doll. And that's the only time that his name is said in the whole story, kind of at the moment of his greatest humiliation and, uh, and vulnerability. That's the only time he has a name. And I really like to do that because if you can keep a character very symbolic uh, until just one, one moment when they get, finally get a name, then uh, I think they're all the more special, kind of like how a lot of religions cannot uh, express their name for the word God or express images of God, that if the character you know, can only have one moment when their name is actually said, that makes a character all the more real and somehow special. Uh, I think Branch McCarty, his real name is really only Stead maybe once or twice through the whole book. And, and he's a, an interesting character because when we first meet him and, and through much of the book, we have a, a vision of him that is his somewhat his vision of himself. And he seems like, you know, he's maybe he's older, but he's not. Uh, uh, a rack. <laughs> Yet, uh, as we, we eventually learn something rather different, I think that's a, a, a fascinating uh, look at how peop- the contrast between people's self-images and, their, and the way other people perceive them. And that's always really heartbreaking, is to have a character realize how, the, uh, how they occur for other people and to have a real uh, schism, a real disconnect between how you think you occur and how you actually do occur for people uh, is devastating. And for a lot of the characters, um, a lot of my characters, you know, they don't move past that point. Because a lot of times in our lives, you know, we have this way we think we are, and we want to be that way, and we think that way is working. And at the moment we discover it's not working, we're offered the choice of either continuing in that, in that way of being that we now know doesn't work. So we're going to have to sort of choose to deny the truth and continue being that, that lie. Or we have to come up with a different way of being. And that is so threatening to kind of have to completely reinvent yourself. Um, and you know, unfortunately, most people probably sort of choose inauthenticity. They choose to pretend that they don't know the truth at that point. As a, a, a book about the movies, um, this is n- not a, a, a flattering view. And, and I'm wondering if you could conceive of a, a, a similar book about writing books. Oh, you know, never. I might conceive of it, but I would never write it. My least favorite genre of writing is writers writing about writers. And the moment a character turns out to be a writer, I put the book down. Uh, I'm just not interested. Writers are not that special. They're not that interesting. Uh, No, I'd much rather read about anybody, anybody but a writer. Well, I'm thinking more just about the the process of of writing. It's is it as sausage-like, sausage-making-like as as uh, the process of making movies? I mean, you're you're a writer. Do you, do you feel that you have to like 
some you know roll in the dirt in in the same way that these people have to like roll in the in the bronzer i do but it's you know my process is so much less physical than their process and i think if you're going to depict something on the page verbs are a way of coming in under the wire and people the readers perceive verbs um interpret verbs in a really sort of spooky physiological way that when you read the verb run or kick or, or, or kiss or, or talk, the part of your brain that would light up if you were actually doing that thing, that part lights up. Your brain doesn't know the difference between the verb on the page and the actual action. So, so if you can tell a story in a very physical series of actions, then, then it seems to sort of occur within the reader in a much less guarded way, uh, kind of the way that my dog is when it, when it sees a bird or a squirrel. My dog is suddenly just hypnotized and completely held by the twitching actions of that thing. My dog is sort of completely in a trance. And I think verbs do that really well. And I'm afraid if I told the, the story of a writer and a writer's process, there wouldn't be enough action to really achieve that kind of verb trance. So, so as you write, you really think intensely about the reading experience that the readers go through. And that's why everyone has a prop and everyone has a series of ongoing physical gestures and physical business. And that's why there's always some very specific sort of confined physical activity happening in every scene. Because dialogue should really be the smallest part of the scene and as much should be carried by physical action as possible. And... and Again, and this gives light to why you like to uh, treat such distressing, phys- physically distressing situations, because it's the the sensations of the potato, the greasy potato chips, to the bronzer. Everything immediately affects the reader before they even have a chance to to process what the hell's going on. Exactly, and it kind of lowers their guard so that when the emotional thing happens or the intellectual thing happens the reader is uh, much more vulnerable. Chuck Polinick taking advantage of his readers. Hey, that's my job. Chuck, tell us what you're working on now. Uh, I just finished a book called Pygmy for next year. Uh, And Pygmy is a story of a 12, 13-year-old exchange student from an unnamed foreign, third-world sort of totalitarian country. And Pygmy and, and Maybe a dozen of his fellow exchange students have been brought over to the Midwest to live for six months with white, Christian, middle-class, Midwestern families. But what nobody knows except for the students is that they're all these super ninja, terrorist, genius kids who've been trained since infancy to come over and to create science fair projects that will be eventually taken to the National Science Fair Finals at the Smithsonian Institute and explode in Washington, D.C., killing millions of Americans. So Pygmy is a comedy about terrorism. Uh, I, that's something that makes everybody I know laugh. Oh, yeah. It's just a <laughs> barrel full of monkeys. And, and you, you're a guy who likes genre fiction, and you did a horror trilogy. I, I know you're, you're, we got the first book of us, what you told us was a science fiction trilogy. Are you still working on that? I sure am. And the first book was Rant. But the second and the third books 
are going to be so sort of grounded in 20th century history that I really want to do an enormous amount of research. Um, so in the meantime, I've been doing shorter, funnier, dirtier books like Snuff and Pygmy. But beyond that, I will be writing a second and a third Grant books. And let me ask, are, are you pleased with the, the movie Choke? Have you seen it? Oh, it's extraordinary. It is really wonderful. And I think, you know, 90% of that is Sam Rockwell. Sam is just a genius at, in all of his movies, at being a really despicable but really sympathetic character. Uh, and Angelica Houston is terrific. And Kelly MacDonald and, and Clark Gregg just, uh, it just did a fantastic job writing it and directing it. And it was just a blast because... Shooting it, I don't think they did more than five takes of any shot. So there was this constant forward momentum. And it was felt like a sort of a constant, big, huge party uh, in these very dirty, catered places. <laughs> it, it sounds uh, uh, quite a bit like it had quite a bit of influence on, on the writing in, in Snuff. You know, I, I'm sure I had Snuff as a manuscript and I drag it all, drug it along with me. So that when everybody else was knitting or readjusting lights or getting something else really right, I could was probably just sitting there with snuff in my lap, line editing it. That makes sense. We've been speaking with Chuck Polinick. His new novel is Snuff. His new movie is Choke. Thank you for joining me, Chuck. Hey, thank you very much, Rick. Let's do it again next year. Next year. Sounds good. You're listening to Rick Kleffel, the Agony Column podcast. You can find additional reviews, interviews, print interviews, and book commentary five days a week at trashotroncom agony.